0: This is Eli Lake, and you are listening to The Reeducation. My guest today is Brian Ketoulas, the Vice President for Policy at the Middle East Institute. And the topic is what to do about an ally like Saudi Arabia. Nearly four years ago in Istanbul, a writer and activist named Jamal Khashoggi walked into the Saudi consulate, and never came out. He was murdered, lured to the building by agents for Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. After he was killed, the team then began to carve up his remains as part of a cover-up. But the hit team miscalculated. Turkish intelligence was monitoring the consulate, and the Turks began to leak out intercepts, photographs, and videos, which made it clear that the Saudi consulate in Turkey's largest city was now a crime scene. For most of his career, Jamal Khashoggi was an advisor to the Saudi government and close with former intelligence chief Prince Turki al-Faisal. But after the ascension of Mohammed bin Salman, Khashoggi was on the outs. He fled his country for the United States where he became a legal resident and wrote a monthly column for the Washington Post. In the pages of that newspaper, Khashoggi was a tough critic of the crown prince Murdering political critics on foreign soil is the kind of rogue behavior that we expect from American adversaries like Russia, China, or Iran. And yet here was America's oldest Arab ally behaving in the exact same way. Bad enough, but the Saudis made things worse by constantly changing their story about Khashoggi, only to be exposed by the Turkish leaks. First, the Saudis said they had no clue what had happened to Khashoggi. Then he died in a fight with consulate personnel. Over a period of weeks, the Saudis were forced to reluctantly acknowledge that this critic was murdered. This was a full-on diplomatic crisis. We made clear to them that we take this matter with respect to Mr. Khashoggi very seriously. Uh, They made clear to me that they too understand the serious nature of the disappearance of Mr. Khashoggi. Uh, They also assured me that they will conduct a complete, thorough uh, investigation of all of the facts surrounding Mr. Khashoggi, and that they will do so in a timely fashion. That was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He had to walk a fine line. Because when you are the Secretary of State, you don't have the luxury to grandstand like a senator or member of the House. America needs Saudi Arabia. They are critical partners against jihadist terrorists in the Middle East, and they are aligned with the United States against Iran. Fighting Iran's proxies in a bloody war in Yemen is something that at least under the Trump administration's interpretation was very much in America's interests. The Saudis are also the guardians of the holiest sites in Islam, hosting the annual Hajj when Muslims from all over the world make a pilgrimage to Mecca. And most important, the Saudis control about a fifth of the world's oil reserves, giving it a lot of influence, if not the power to set the global price of oil. Now that said, the young crown prince of Saudi Arabia is reckless. It's not just that Mohammed bin Salman almost certainly ordered the murder of Khashoggi. He was also seizing the assets of rivals in the royal family. He had detained against his will the Prime Minister of Lebanon. He arrested women's rights activists and relied on the counsel of a closed circle of neophytes who pushed him to escalate a dead-end war in Yemen. And even though MBS, as he is known, allowed women to drive, opened the first movie theater in the country, and held some of the state's more radical clerics to account, his increasing autocracy overshadowed those reforms. Pompeo and President Trump eventually sought a somewhat balanced approach. They assured the Saudis that they wanted to preserve the strategic relationship, while also signaling that the murder of Khashoggi was unacceptable. The Trump administration, at least, eventually sanctioned some of the Saudi officials responsible for Khashoggi's demise under new human rights law known as the Magnitsky Act. But this was not enough for many in Washington. Here's Trump ally, Senator Lindsey Graham.
1: MBS, the crown prince, is a wrecking ball. I think he's complicit in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi to the highest level possible. I think the behavior before the Khashoggi murder was beyond disturbing. And I cannot see him being a reliable partner to the United States. Saudi Arabia and MBS are two different uh, entities. Uh, If the Saudi government is going to uh, be in the hands of this man uh, for a long time to come, I find it very difficult to be able to do business because I think he's crazy. I think he is dangerous, and uh, he has put the relationship at risk.
0: Graham was not the only one who wanted to rethink the near-century-old alliance with Saudi Arabia, and here is Joe Biden in 2019 during the Democratic primaries. Khashoggi was in fact murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the Crown Prince, and I would make it very clear we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the, in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. When Joe Biden came into office, he kept Saudi Arabia in the icebox. One of the first acts of his administration was to lift sanctions on some of the Houthi organizations the Saudis are fighting in Yemen, for example. Biden also curtailed U.S. assistance to Saudi Arabia for that war. Not surprising, the Saudis pulled back as well. So when earlier this year, Biden pressed Riyadh to increase oil production to make up for the expected shortfall caused by sanctions on Russia after Putin's invasion of Ukraine, MBS told the Biden administration to go pound sand. This is why it's so significant that Biden has now reversed his policy. Next month, he will travel to Riyadh, and meet with a man he once called a pariah. Here is President Joe Biden trying to kind of have it both ways when pressed about this trip last week. I'm not going to meet with MBS, I'm going to an international meeting. And are going to be part of it, just like there were people part of the discussion today. I'm of two minds about all of this. On the one hand, it harms American interest to treat Saudi Arabia like a rogue state when it's on our side against Iran and jihadist terrorism when it has so much influence over the price of oil. Statecraft requires compromise, and an imperfect ally is far better than turning a friend to a foe. Without American support, especially military and security support, the Saudis will turn to China or Russia, and American influence in the Middle East will further wane. At the same time, Biden's new policy makes him look feckless. Only a few months ago, President Biden declared Vladimir Putin was a pariah, after Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, and he was right. It's in America's interest that the rest of the world treat Putin like geopolitical cancer until he withdraws his military from his neighbor's territory. Reversing himself on Saudi Arabia's pariah status, well, it leaves the impression that an unrepentant Russia may soon be welcomed back into the community of nations if global inflation spikes further. There are no easy answers here, but there is a lesson Don't make threats unless you are prepared to follow them through. If Joe Biden really wanted to treat Saudi Arabia like a pariah, he needed to prepare for the prospect that Saudi Arabia would not be cooperative during a global energy crisis. He needed to consider what American diplomacy in the Middle East could accomplish without a close relationship with Saudi Arabia, and then determine if those downsides outweighed the benefits of imposing harsh consequences on an ally that acts like a rogue. And has political opponents murdered in a third country but it's clear that biden and his administration did not do that instead the president allowed the wish to be the father of his policy he indulged in satisfying rhetoric at the expense of american interests the president's coming humiliation in riyadh next month is sadly the predicted consequence of this short-sightedness there's not much that joe biden can do about it now but it's something that the biden administration ought to consider the next time they have to confront an ally that acts like a rogue. Well, we are really lucky today to have as our guest on The Re-Education, Brian Katulis, who is the Vice President for Policy at the Middle East Institute. And in my view, the perfect person to talk about U.S.-Saudi relationship, having just returned from Saudi Arabia. Thanks so much for coming on The Re-Education, Brian. Thanks for having me on, Eli. You're doing a great job here on this podcast, and it's great. Thank to you. Yeah. So let, I want to start off by just kind of getting the basics for our audience. Why is the U.S.-Saudi relationship important? Well,
1: it all goes back to FDR, meeting the King of Saudi Arabia, years and years ago. Now, it, it's important for a number of reasons. One, obviously, the obvious one is oil and energy, and that's right. historically been the, the link. But that's less important these days directly for the US because we've become an energy powerhouse
0: in in a, of our own right but still it's a global energy market as we've seen in the last 6 months right and and then, and it's in the US interest to have stable pricing for yeah oil so even though we are energy independent or at least can be energy independent yeah if you have the saudis not on you know, not not on our side, so to speak, it can still cause massive fluctuations and problems in the global economy.
1: Right, in the global yeah. uh,
0: energy market and the global economy is all interlinked.
1: Yes. We're, we're seeing in the last, so that's one. Number two, it's, it's a large economy in and of itself. It's a member of the G20. It's the largest economy in the, in the Middle East itself. Third, it's a key security partner on multiple fronts. And this is complicated by the fact that, yes, 15 out of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia had their own 9-11 about a year after our 9-11, which was an attack, a series of attacks by Al-Qaeda. So in essence, for the last 20 years, they've been a very close counterterrorism partner on that front. And then on traditional sort of regional security fronts, the US does not have the military presence that it once did inside of Saudi Arabia. After the Iraq war, that shifted a bit, but we for years have cooperated with Saudi Arabia, along with another number of other Middle East partners, including the UAE, Israel, Qatar, where we have bases there. So it's, it's about energy. It's about the economy. It's about security. And then I'd add a fourth, which is, it's about also the nature of how America relates to the broader so-called Muslim world, you know, Islam mm-hmm. itself. For, for decades, many of us had deep worries about Wahhabism and the extremism, that was coming out of Saudi Arabia and what it funded. And that's actually shifting quite a lot because of some of the changes inside of the kingdom, the leadership and generational changes, but then also what I think is a process mostly being driven by Saudis themselves, the next generation of Saudis who many of them have been educated in the US and the West, and they go back and they're like, we don't want to have sort of our grandfather or our father's country and right. they're changing things with the religion itself too, which I think is seismic and is, and is under underappreciated. It's still very much a work in progress. So for those four reasons, I mean, it's terribly important because America relates to that country and works closely with it on on the security, economic energy, and then ide- ideological front as well.
0: Well, I want to I ask that because I think it's confusing to people who aren't, who aren't like us, who've followed this very closely over the years. How do, how can you explain Mohammed bin Salman, on the one hand, has instituted reforms that the West has asked for Saudi Arabia to do, especially when it came comes to fighting domestic extremism. He has allowed for movie theaters. He has allowed for an expansion, although limited, of, of rights for women in his country, which we all would say was sort of in the plus category. But at the same time, is responsible not only for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but has used murder and I would say extraterritorial murder as a kind of tool for consolidating his power, which is obviously very bad, something that we associate with the worst kind of autocracies. So how can you how do we, how would you explain to sort of to somebody who isn't following the story, this paradox of Mohammed bin Salman? The tension there, I think, and and the explanation
1: of the very awful behavior of murdering yes. journalists and mm-hmm. repressing people at home, repressing dissent. It comes down to simply this. it un, Uneasy lies the head that almost wears the crown. Like most autocrats and dictators, this is a man who's deeply insecure about his own position. And this is especially the case, I think, in in many of the absolute monarchies. So anytime we see this with Sisi and Egypt, the president of Egypt, anytime someone offers a different point of view that is seen as a challenge to the legitimacy and the power of the the person who's in charge or who's almost in charge in the case of MBS because his father's nominally still the king, King Salman. They tend to lash out and overreach, and and they don't because they don't feel secure on some level in their own position. Any, anytime anyone challenges that and wants to have an alternative idea, the the response in an absolute monarchy is is quite harsh, and it conflicts with our values. It conflicts with our system. What's changed is that first part that you talked about, where there's been an opening on the social reform front, religious front as well. And that seems incompatible to the mind of an American or somebody living in Europe. But I gotta tell you, you know, I was when I was in Riyadh at a informal dinner with some people, no, no officials, just ordinary Saudis. Mm-hmm. They're they're professors and things like this, they see it as compatible, right? They're they're going through this process, especially the younger generation, where they, they, many of them, as I mentioned, were educated in the West and they want their kids to have a different sort of thing. And what's interesting inside of Saudi Arabia, there's sort of a lost generation in their late forties and fifties and sixties who lived under a strictly author, uh, authoritarian Wahhabism in terms of social and religious norms. And that's changing. And maybe they're not changing that generation, but this new generation truly is. And and one one thing I'd say from this last trip, and it's a funny anecdote, but one of the younger Saudi professors I was at, at one of these informal dinners with looked at our, what's going on inside of America and our own political divides and also the social divides. Mm-hmm. And you know what he said to me? And it really caught me. He said, you know what your cancel culture and woke yeah. stuff <laughs> seems like, sounds like to me? He said, it sounds like to me those religious police that we used to have <laughs> in, in Saudi Arabia. These were guys who, who walked around with sticks. And if you weren't dressed, in the appropriate right. way as they deemed it, or if you didn't say this right sort of thing, yeah, they would actually literally beat people, right? So he was being farcical a little bit, but he was just saying that like, look, you know, we get it. We're different. We're a different society. You you, and I, I still, you know, I'm, I'm more comfortable in democracies and people that have a chance to have a, a voice in their systems, right? But it is a different system and it's changing on the social and religious front, but I see no change right now in terms of this this monarchy moving towards a different system in Saudi Arabia.
0: I want to press you a little bit because I think that those of us who are in the West who have spent a lot of time in the Middle East, we kind of just assume that we would know. And so when you described maybe what MBS is thinking as to why he has resorted to these tactics, these murderous tactics to stay in power there's a kind of Western view that's like, well, you know, that's almost like a psychological reaction because there's a kind of paranoia in these absolute monarchies. But maybe, do you think that there is an argument here that maybe he has a point, which is to say, he does have enemies inside the kingdom. There are rival factions within the Saudi royal family, and there are lots of powerful people within Saudi Arabia who do not want to see the country Modernize in the way that he wants to modernize it. Now, I'm not, it's not an excuse. Nobody is saying it was okay yeah, yeah, yeah. to murder yeah. Khashoggi. It was terrible, it was awful, it was an awful, horrific crime. Make that very clear. My point is, is that sometimes do we in the West maybe wrongly think we would know better about how to survive in power for those in Saudi Arabia, which has been a kind of an assumption of the debate in Washington about U.S.-Saudi relationships. Did did MBS maybe have a point that if you're going to do what he's going to do, you're going to have to, you know, I hate to use this expression, maybe break a little eggs to make an omelet. I hear that, and yes, I do think there's just a values gap between the United States and Saudi that's Arabia. For sure,
1: yeah, and they just have a different system of governance, right? And I think what you're describing, the the criticisms, I think are are warranted, fair, and need to be part of the conversation with Saudi Arabia, right? That's that's what a mature Relationship would look like even if we have these values differences, we have shared concerns and a need to cooperate, as we talked earlier, on multiple fronts. So, what what I think is, I, I would stay away from either justifying brutal tactics. I, I certainly wouldn't do that. No, I'm not, but and I explains. want to. Say, I'm not justifying anything. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, any yeah of I know that. you're not yeah, doing yeah. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, I think it it helps explain it, right? Yeah, uh, but I think we should. I mean, I think it's our role because China won't do it, Russia won't do this. Is to continue to voice these concerns and then also keep it part of the mix as we're you know trying to try to walk and chew gum at the same time because sometimes people present feist, the false dichotomies in our politics. I don't know if you've noticed that or in our foreign policy as well. Yeah. You have to do one or the other. And to me, you know, when the, not only the murder of Khashoggi and then the repression of activists and you add to it, the Yemen war and all of these things that I think have become part of America's politics, but mostly at the elite level and from, you know, the different strands, not, not animating ordinary Americans. Oftentimes the criticisms, which I think were warranted, weren't coupled with, okay, then what do we do about it? This guy, MBS looks likely to be the heir apparent and will be becoming the king and maybe there for a long period of time. Isn't it better to try to engage and then try to shape that and especially keep human rights on the agenda? I hope that's what Biden's doing here and making this trip is not just going and asking for more oil to be pumped or to try to come up with a plan B on Iran because heaven knows their plan A didn't work out or mm-hmm. isn't working out very well. But I hope they're, they're not doing what the critics have already naturally assumed is that simply by engaging, you're 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 giving up the store on human rights and other things. So yes, I agree with your point. We need to understand the different political contexts. We often don't. There's this phenomenon which I've written about. I think you've seen it. What I call neo Orientalism. People who actually take our social
0: and political divides he- here at home and project right. them on the Middle East. What happened right? that time? Right. Yeah. The and- Iranian hardliners, or like our Republicans yeah. who didn't like the JCPOA, according to. Yeah, Obama. yeah. 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 Or, or right. you know,
1: certain states like Israel or become a red state and, and our own politics and the, Iran becomes like a blue state, you know, a democratic. Yeah. And, and it's actually bad for American politics first, but then bad for U.S. policy because when we, we, we become so caustically divided, like this sectarianism, the tribalism that I see in the Middle East and have seen for decades, you've seen it as well. When you see that in our own policy debates back here, it actually then leads to not very good policy and very not very good policy discussions, right? It's better to avoid that that those divisions. And that neo-Orientalism, I think, is has played out in the evaluation of uh, how people look at Saudi Arabia, the fact that it's an absolute monarchy, that its leaders have used very brutal tactics. And I'm yeah. not saying sweep that under the rug. No, I'm saying keep that as part of the conversation. It, it's more effective to engage it diplomatically, especially, and, well, and use that, our leverage. Let me yeah. push
0: you a little bit, though, on that, sure. because- You know, there's a certain I think that with Khashoggi, because the details came out during the Saudis just lying to the world about it. Yeah. So a lot of it was just how the world learned of this horrible crime, which we were assured at first didn't happen. Right. That there was a sense and Lindsey Graham and other people who, you know at the time were you know certainly not the not president trump and not his administration but but there were republicans and as well as democrats at that moment saying you know what this is crossing so many lines that we can no longer address this through you know demarches and you know you know uh, candid and what is it candid and frank discussions with, yeah, yeah. you know and that kind of thing so the normal tools of diplomacy do not apply when Someone who was writing for the Washington Post is so brutally murdered and then, you know, chopped up in that way. You know, how do you respond to that criticism that just keeping it as part of the mix doesn't feel like it's enough to address the severity of of that kind of crime and the, and what it represented? And by the way, it's people should know Khashoggi is the th- is the case everyone knows, but but MBS, Mohammed bin Salman had ordered these kinds of extraterritorial renditions as well as assassinations against other rivals as well. So it's not just him. So how do you, how do you kind of respond to that? Like, is that really going to be enough to just keep it in the mix and keep raising it at high levels?
1: No, it's not. And these tools, you know, to, to use the cliched sort of carrots Mm -hmm. and sticks, I think sticks are extremely warranted, right? The more targeted sticks and the ones that actually have an impact. Are the ones that matter the most, and by that I mean, okay, you know, you look at what I think President Biden rightly did, which was reveal all of the intel that we had on this murder when it comes to the Khashoggi
0: case. No, it didn't um, tell us what we what we thought it said at the time, but that's another story. But, it, well, okay. yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's always the case in DC, right? We're saying this even in the January 6th hearings and yeah. <laughs> the two impeachments of Trump and uh, everything with Clinton.
0: Uh, yeah. You'd go back. You, it, you, that's, I'm that's, just saying. Uh, I mean, anyway, that, it's a yeah, little yeah, bit yeah. of a minor point, but keep keep going because we, we, we have limited time. Here, yeah. Yeah. I get you. Uh, so yeah. Yes,
1: we need extraordinary measures, but but you look to the things that actually matter the most. Like, what are the Saudis most interested in? They're desperately concerned about their economic and social reform at home. Right. They want they want FDI. They want foreign direct investment. So in some cases, I think the things that people propose as the sticks aren't even big enough sticks when it comes to motivating sure. them towards the pathway. So that's what I would say is like you need a much more expansive engagement. And it's not it's complicated but it's not North Korea, right? Like this is a country that's deeply connected to the rest of the global economy and there are ways for the US to spend time and attention to elevate those concerns about human rights and repression. And what I'm saying Eli is that those who have argued for the last several years the formula that a we're going to pull back from the Middle East and pull out. B, we're going to have magically a new Iran nuclear deal. C, we're going to use the leverage of US aid to Israel to end the occupation, so to speak. And then D, while we're pulling out and doing all of these things, we're also going to actually get a better human rights record out of countries like Saudi Arabia. It doesn't add up. And I think yeah. that Biden's at that point in his presidency right now. If you if you know the MM song, Lose Yourself, Sure. Uh, snap! Snap! <laughs> snap! Back to reality. Oh, there comes gravity, right? And yeah. this is not great. You know, it's not great to to be in this p- position because, especially months after they held their summit for democracy, I would rather, much rather, you know, see us succeed and prioritize in prioritizing democracies, right? And I support sort of Ukrainians and others who are fighting for it. So it's hard for a true democrat, you know, in the small D, to say, okay, we've got to engage these authoritarian systems. But what I'm saying is you got to engage them and use sort of bigger sticks than have been mentioned, which are simply, or it, and, and have that as part of the discussion to motivate them and incentivize them. But you also simultaneously, this sounds muddled, but I think it's the only way you get to progress is you need to continue to work with them on key issues of shared concern, global economy, energy, counterterrorism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can walk and chew gum at the same time, and life isn't just this
0: black or white dichotomous choice, you know? Well, you know, it, it's, the way I would the way I think about it sometimes is this is that if, if there were there were sound reasons after nine eleven to cut Saudi Arabia off. And I'm not talking about the fact that most of the hijackers were from were Saudi. Citizens. yeah, I'm talking yeah. about the fact that we had a lot of evidence that there were senior members of the royal family that were supporting these global charities that were going either directly to al qaeda or we're we're funding the madrasas that we're 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 creating future jihadists and if we were then in, if we were as we were after 9/11 engaging in a new global war on terrorism i'm saying in that very moment there was an there was a very strong argument to say you know what the saudis are kind of on the wrong side of this yeah we didn't end up doing that and we can now sort of say more than 20 years later the saudis really have turned around as a matter of state policy in every sense they are no longer fueling this global jihad as they were in the 20th century, since you could say the late 1960s. So in that respect, it shows that, you know, engagement, you can get change over time. It's it's not going to be dramatic. You're not going to get like, you know, a statement saying I will never murder my political opponents again. But things can change. And even in authoritarian countries. Yeah, you're right. But we can't be naive about how that how what how the trajectory goes. I remember- Sure. No, no, no. They were self-interested by the Saudis. The Saudis it, kind of did it because they were threatened by Al-Qaeda and they were threatened by the- they couldn't just keep exporting it. But my point is that, like, if you would have said, you know, in 2001, 2002- Right. The Saudis are going to be a really good partner on Intel in terms of finding these jihadists and they're going to yeah, yeah, be really yeah, yeah. good on the financing of, of this stuff. I mean, people who, who worked it, you know, in the intelligence community would have said, what are you, nuts? Yeah, yeah. You know, so- Yeah, Yeah. but the point I was going to say is that, you know,
1: we can't be naive when it comes, because engagement, I'm generally in favor of that. But look at what happened with China, for instance, and the arguments that many of us made, and and Clinton and others in the 1990s. And I recall, you know, after the Khashoggi incident, I believe it was James Baker, who was the former Secretary of State for George H.W. Bush. He argued that, you know, he was holding up the fact that the Bush administration continued to engage China after the Tiananmen massacre, yeah, uh, and that this was a some sort of a template to follow, you know, in light of how Saudi be- Saudi Arabia more recently behaved. I didn't agree with that, right? Like, because because that China thing has not worked out well for us <laughs> when you think about it. So yeah. my point is, like, I'm not just open the gates to engagement. You have to be smart about it and use the leverage both the positive engagement and then things that you sanction or try to isolate and bad behavior. And what's interesting, Eli, the reason I bring China into this is that many of the so-called progressives, and I use that phrase so-called, because on foreign policy they're not really many of them aren't forward-looking. Like, it, but many of them actually fall into the camp of okay, we need to downgrade ties with Saudi Arabia, but we need to work with China. That I'm talking today in 2022, yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of incoherent and crazy to me.
0: Right? Well, if you're <laughs> if you're upset about Saudi Arabia, if you're upset about Mohammed bin Salman's record of murdering domestic political opponents if you're yeah. upset about Mohammed, about the Saudi war in Yemen and how yeah, it yeah. leads to regional instability then why are you not demanding more sanctions on Iran instead your position the progressive position is lift the sanctions on Iran get right back into the Iran nuclear agreement and cut off Saudi Arabia so it doesn't yeah. it doesn't make sense from a it's not, it can I mean you know the Sophisticated types will always sort of of course have the throat clearing about how, well, you know, it's a shame about the the, the right. But you know, I mean, if you're gonna get into American citizens or US residents, there there are still American citizens that are imprisoned unjustly in Iran right now. Right, yeah, hundred percent You, can, you, can't, you yeah. can't tell me that your 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 policy is, you know, lift the sanctions on, on Iran and isolate Saudi Arabia. It doesn't make any sense to me. If unless you have other you're you're not really you're not doing this out of a position of human rights. You're doing it because you just think it would be better for the United States to be allies with Iran, which is another issue. But I'm just saying well, that Well, yeah, that's born out I think some of that is born out of the Iraq War
1: and how sure. people perceived it. And and then also but but the main point I'd add to it, and you sort of said it, but I want to put a fine yeah. point on it, is that the so-called progressives and please. Add the so-called, because many, most of them, again, and I've written articles about this, are not forward-looking these days. They're often stuck somewhere between 2003 and 2015 when they Mm. talk about the Middle East in particular. They're like stuck in, like, you know, still writing articles about how Dick Cheney and you know, and here we are in 2022, and it makes no sense because they're not dealing with the reality. But the thing that's often missing in the equation uh, from from the so-called progressives on Iran is a focus on the human rights in Iran. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it's, and I, again, I am somebody, and I think you and I disagreed on JCPOA, if I recall, I was in favor
0: of it, thought. We yeah, we did. We disagreed crude. on it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I still think it's good and noble and important to try to get to a new nuclear agreement. I don't know if I, it doesn't look like it's going to work this time, but I also think you needed to have engagement on the other fronts in the way that we did in the
0: Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, there was the third Carter, basket of Reagan. Helsinki.
0: Right. Yeah. You you needed that. And but, but I should it, slow down for, for our audience. Yeah. Because this is an un, it's an it's a forgotten chapter of us diplomatic history but there was something known as the helsinki accords with the soviet union and the united states which were largely about regional security and proliferation but there was what was called the third basket which dealt with human rights and i think at the time and then, when this was signed i think in the ford administration the soviets believed that this was a great way to sort of highlight the inequalities of the United States, and they thought it would be a propaganda win for them because you look at the history of the United States and the progr- and and hard left in the United States, there was a there was a, there was a times a kind of synchrony between like an Angela Davis critique of America and what the Soviets said, but it turned out to be a great boon for U.S. interests because actual activists and human rights, you know, at the beginnings of what you could call human rights organizations in the Soviet Union kind of waved the Helsinki Accords and said. Why aren't you living up to this? You have to treat prisoners in a certain way, and then U.S. diplomats then would reinforce that, and it became very, very powerful at, at the end of the Cold War and in, in the Reagan administration. Not an administration often known for its, you know, defense of human rights, but it became a huge thing, and I think it was a very important factor in leading ultimately to the collapse of the evil empire.
1: Hundred percent, and I, I've yeah.
0: written about the need to yes. have that as part of the formula in the Middle East as
1: well, and some people didn't like it, and I think. One of the biggest shortcomings in Obama's Middle East approach, and this is not a this is sort of an out, out, oddball sort of outlier view, but I think it was his response to the Arab Spring, the Arab uprisings, and the uneven response mm. to, to the popular uprisings, and it, it, it basically hit a wall in Libya and then Syria, which became. No, I would say I think, it,
0: hit, a, it hit a wall in Egypt, right? Well, 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 that
1: that was part of it, but that the coup came later in 2013. What I'm saying is, when the civil war right. broke out in Syria. And then we were sort of like this question of, well, do we engage or not and stand up for people? And then ultimately, the reason I raise this, Eli, is that the broader structural factors of, of what's going on broadly in the Middle East, not just in Saudi Arabia, is that when you see the pressures on the economic and social front that we saw in 2010, uh, what I see in the Middle East, and especially in North Africa, it's right. similar sorts of dynamics because of the food and energy price crisis. Mm. It's hard to predict what will happen, but it looks like you might see more popular revolutions. And my point is this is that back to the Helsinki point, is that there needs to be a, a part of that idealistic sort of US engaged, it's not, it's framed as idealistic, but freedom needs to be on the agenda in, in the Middle East strategy. And that includes Saudi Arabia. And they yeah. might not like it, but I think it needs to be part of the conversation and not just. Polite talk between diplomats, but then trying to open the door to raise and Mm -hmm. diversify sort of the debates inside of Saudi Arabia and things like this.
0: And I would I would just but we have to be very careful though, because in Washington, you know, we talk about foreign policy and we have outcomes and so forth. But we always have to be humble in the sense that reform will come because the there will be people who organize themselves and demand it, or there will be very foresighted, but there will be leaders who have, who are extraordinary and can sort of see into the future and push that reform along. And and yeah. and Mohammed bin Salman has, I, I had hopes that he might be that person and he, 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 there's too much of the other bad stuff in it that we can't really say that he is, but that it's not really like reform in Saudi Arabia, if it ever happens, it's not going to be because we had the right policy. Right, right, right. Yeah, of course, the people who want to do it, we can say, this is good. We'll will we'll help you. We, we we think it's an important we can talk, speak out for political prisoners. We can do all kinds of things, but it's going to be because of the people themselves who make these decisions. That's you know, we should have that. I just think we should have that humility because if we get into the into the bad habit uh, that some of us in that uh, some American foreign policy types in the Cold War thought that it's up to us. We We, we can we can we can engineer the revolution. Yeah. Well, you know, then we're, and, and, uh, you know <laughs> then we're back to Alan Dulles and uh, you know, then we're back to Mostad. No. It's not, it's not necessarily the right move. No, we
1: shouldn't be in the business yeah. of regime change. We should have learned that right. in the last especially 20 years. But we should be in the business of engaging with broader populations and making yeah. freedom part of the discussion. And yes, a little bit of that is us projecting our own values that I hope remain strong in this country. But it's just what you get when you deal with Americans is what I'm saying. And it's not like we're coming into Knock off like we did with Saddam Hussein. It's a much more sophisticated
0: nuance, and I think it involves mostly non-government, right? Yeah, hundred so percent. I it, yeah. absolutely. And also, we yeah. need we need to be comfortable with the idea that civil society leaders can be great change. You know, can can do this too. It doesn't always have to come down to the ambassador. There are times when the ambassador maybe is the wrong person. Yeah, to yeah. make that. To, if we're if we're dealing with like a security crisis or something like that. I mean, look, you know, look, it complicates talking, the ambassador's agenda in a way, right? I mean, you're,
1: you're, yeah, you're talking to a guy. Who, I started my career working for a group called National Democratic Institute. I was in my course, 20s. Yeah. I was living in Palestine and Israel, and then Egypt. And this was long before the revolution happened in 2011. This is in the 1990s. But what we did was help people in Egypt and in Palestine and others become more connected to others, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, and understand the tools of how do you conduct you know, change? How do you advocate for your position? Right. Not necessarily revolution, but how do you empower your own communities? And that's something like, frankly, we need a dose of that back here in America, where we, how do you listen
0: to each other even if you have different views and come to an accommodation? Oh yeah, I think, I think, and by the way, that work's very important, but there's some groups that maybe we shouldn't have imparted those skills. So let's just leave it there. Well, 100%, like there's mistakes made all the like, time. Yes, yeah, the Muslim yeah. Brotherhood should not be getting expertise from americans about how to better advocate for their position yeah yeah again uh, there no no that's not a criticism of you or ndi or iri which is the republican institute it's not it's not not saying that they do a lot of really important work yeah i want to make that very clear i'm just saying that we were a bit naive in the 90s about how any political actors should be getting this and we should be neutral in some ways yeah and well we were weakly na- we
1: were we were weekly naive i
0: think in the 2000s and the 2000s after, too you're yeah, 100% yeah, absolutely right yeah
1: yeah and it, it's not a cure all but the point i'm trying to make and i think yeah. you, you understand it is that you got to engage like this formula of simply downgrade and isolate i, I think no. actually leads to less better outcomes on human rights on our own national security interests and it's complicated. You can't offer a cookie cutter approach. And my hope is that Biden on this visit next month, it opens the pathway to more connection, to more honest yeah. conversations and not just between our leaders and more mature conversations. Because yes, America, we should debate whether he's doing this trip or not, but he's doing it. And like, how do we get the most out of it for our interests and
0: then also our values? And I want to just end it on this because I know you got to run, but just really quickly, let's just take the other view. What would it mean if Biden continued to be consistent in his kind of initial policy to treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah, what would be the practical implications of that had he stuck with that approach?
1: I think the dynamic you already see in play of China and Russia uh, right. getting more deeply engaged inside of Saudi Arabia and the region, we, we in essence, would be, become less, less of a factor than we already were. And I, I saw that happening under Obama. Trump, frankly, can mostly continued that process because he was so confused in his messaging about the region. So the first consequence would be that other countries would have greater influence. Fill the void. Yeah, Yeah. fill the void. The second would be maybe not, and I think that's a mostly negative thing for US interests. The second may may have some positive aspects. The second is that these countries would then, Saudi Arabia and other countries would then feel like they're the masters of their own destiny and that, that they would stand up for themselves in their own way. And actually, I think there's
0: some good with that because then they're less dependent on our security umbrella and other things. Brian, do you, you think the Saudis would, would just, I I don't know, I'm very worried. I hope they can build more resilient institutions, but you think that, I mean, I think the Emiratis is the beginning of a, a competent military. Do you think the Saudis do? They're, they're really certainly not there yet, but what I've seen on successive visits, and I'm
1: talking yeah. since 2015, is that there's a cultural shift inside of ministries, inside of universities and institutions, that actually are lifting up people and giving them more sway in the way that these other monarchies like Qatar and you mentioned the UAE especially has done this. They're, you know, they're still, but what my main point is that this, this enabling factor that the U.S. has played with its security umbrella that we're seen as the security guarantor. I've been of the belief for years that the U.S. should move towards a new model where yes, we fade a little bit to the background, but what we do is stay part of the equation and encourage greater regional integration. There's more competence that's emerging over there, in part because there's a generational shift. Like I said, there's it's going to take a little bit more time. But the downside, to this, the downside of the second point of that they feel more mm-hmm. capable is that broader in the region, and you see what happened in the blockade and all, yeah. a bunch of the Yemen war, a bunch of rash and reckless moves could yeah. come as a result of this. So if there, if I mentioned sort of you know the U.S. Biden may be moving from adolescence to a more mature stage in its approach to the Middle East here in, in doing this visit, in the same sort of way, I think there's, there's, they're not yet quite ripe and mature enough to, to make the decisions that, that don't blow back in their own face. And it could create bigger, bigger challenges in the Middle East, more complications, more conflict. But I don't know, you know, for every action is a reaction. So we're at an interesting phase. And I think we'll, we'll see what happens. The,
0: the visit will be important, but then what, 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 what happens after the follow-up is equally important too. Could the Zionist entity, a.k.a. Israel, assume that security umbrella that the United States has had for generations? It certainly could be a part of it. So like,
1: I I would never see, even with the warming relations and things like the Abraham Accords between the UAE and Israel, I would never see the trust, Mm -hmm. because every country will want to maintain their own national security. So what I think should happen is... The U.S. should encourage, as it's done with this move of moving Israel from the European military command that we have right. to central command, that's a step towards a greater regional security integration, which I think would be a good thing. So Israel, yes, has is, has is the dominant military power in the region. But what I think would be wiser is to stitch that together with the capacities that exist in Jordan, in some of the Gulf states, and right. with Egypt. It's sort of happened patchwork. But I think the wave of the future isn't this false debate that you hear from restrainers or so-called offshore balancers of, well, we're just leaving the Middle East. The real debate is actually the U.S. is probably right-sizing because we have other contingencies in China and Europe and other places. But as we do that, we need to make sure that our partners can work a little bit better together because there are terrorists still that are out there. There are threats like Iran to regional security. And having them have more, it sounds wonky and it is bureaucratic for interoperable air defense systems makes much more sense right it, and and have them own it and so yes israel i just see it's inevitable that they will have normalized relations with most countries in the region it's not going to happen until there's progress on the palestinian front it won't happen i think with the saudis because of that anytime soon mm-hmm. and that's another you know longer conversation of course but it's it's going to happen i think inevitably because the practical security conditions of the, the region will require it. The, the, the tensions that we have here at home of w- we're over-invested in certain
0: parts of the world. We need to do more here. And there's a, there's a much more balanced approach is what I'm saying, Eli. All right. Well, with that, I got to thank you so much for coming on Great. The Re-Education. We'll, we'll have you back for sure. Excellent. Listen, if you like this podcast, give us five stars. Write us nice reviews. We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Eli. Thank you. This has been the Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.